Hi, everyone. Let me get my notes. I always get nervous when, when a teacher reaches for their notes. I'm like, uh-oh, it's going to be dry. You know, when I was young, or when I was younger, I worked for an organic gardener, garden center. And when I first went to work for them, nobody wanted to work Sundays. I thought it was just because it was Sundays, you know. But I learned the garden center, there were three or four fundamentalist churches around that garden center. And after service, they would come in to shop around the garden, you know, the center. And they were so, so mean, so angry. It was really tough to wait on them. And finally, and no one wanted to wait on them. So finally, I asked a coworker, why are they so angry? Why are they so mean? And his answer was, well, you'd be angry, too, if every Sunday for two to four hours you got told you were going to go to hell. And I just want to assure you that this talk on karma is not a hell and damnation speech. When Ron first asked me um, to talk today, invited me to talk today, I felt inspired to talk about karma. But I was a little concerned, a little nervous about talking about karma because it can be a very polarizing subject to talk about. It's almost sometimes it's almost like stepping into a spiritual boxing ring, you know. <clears throat> and I think it's bad karma to fight over karma. But boy, I've heard people get in some serious discussions about karma. And I had to ask myself, why is karma such a hot topic? And I came up with sort of two underlying possibilities. I'm sure there are many more. The first that I came up with is karma is very culturally sensitive. And by that, I mean, let me give you a specific example. As an American, I was raised to believe in the American dream. It was part of my, um, my psyche, cultural psyche. It's part of our psych cultural identity. even. And in essence, the American dream says, whether it's real, whether you believe in it's real or not, it says that you can break free from, rise out of your caste system and become anything you want to be with hard work and belief you can even become royalty you know part of that the whole kennedy and camelot was american royalty so to say to an american no no your karma is your karma it doesn't sit well at all it ruffles feathers and then there's other cultures that believe in the exact opposite that your karma your caste is your caste and that's that and to tell them no you can break free of that caste system anytime you want that ruffles their feathers. So that's the first thing I noticed. The second thing I believe is that most people don't go looking for information. They go looking for validation. They already think something, and then they go looking for spiritual or scriptural authorities which validate the way they already think. And most people already think a certain way about karma. So getting to share information with them is challenging. What I have noticed over the years, and I've seen spiritual teachers answer this question. I've, I've heard Roy Eugene Davis answer this question. I've heard Swami Rama answer this question. I've heard Satya Sai Baba answer this question. And the question is almost always something like this. Do I have to experience my karma? That's the question I've heard almost every summer I was with Roy. I heard someone ask some version of that question to him. What I noticed, though, is they really weren't trying to find out information. It wasn't a, an intellectual question. It was really more a question based in fear. 
what they were asking really was, I am afraid to experience the consequences of my past actions, must I? That's what they were asking. I am afraid to experience the consequences of my past actions. Do I have to? Let me ask you this. How many of you already answered that question in your head? And then with that answer of your question, how many of you validated it with some spiritual or scriptural authority? No, no, you don't have to experience your karma, so-and-so said. Or yes, you have to experience your karma, such-and-so said. See how easy it is to acquire validation over information? And what I want to tell you about the question of karma is, it is not a black or white moral imperative. There does not have to be a yes and no answer to the question of karma. As a matter of fact, black and white are not colors, are they? Black and white is a narrow point of view, a rigid perspective. And one of the signs of psychologically and spiritually mature people is seeing in color. So what I'm asking you for the next 40 minutes or so, because it's not a real long talk, is just sort of to suspend whatever you've already decided about karma for the next 40 minutes. Open your mind up to possibility thinking, still keeping your discernment. Let's see if that can help us sort of move through this question of karma. But still, the question remains, and that is, is karma fixed? When I get asked that question, and I get asked a lot, here is how I answer. The more awake to our existence being we are, the more aware of our spiritual identity we are, the more choice we have. And I notice something. Those spiritual adepts that I observe that are very aware of their inner truth seem less concerned with the expression of karma in their external environment. They just seem okay. They're at peace. And I think it's probably because they see through the Leela. Does everybody know Leela? The divine play. They see it for what Yoganandaji said it was, a play of light and shadows. As spiritual beings, our superpower is choice. And the more awake we are, the more developed is our superpower. The more awake we are, the more choice we have. Okay? Let me rephrase that another way. The more awake we are, the less fixed is our karma. The less awake we are, the more fixed is our karma. And this entire inverse equation, spiritual equation, floats in grace. And grace will not be predicted. Grace does not care about spiritual mathematics. And that grace cannot be restricted. That's my answer when it comes to his karma fixed. I don't think I could be any less black and white. So the more, so the answer to our karma is always the same. Wake up. Right? That's the answer that I have for everybody when it comes to karma is karma, karma fixed. And also in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, to validate what I just said, <laughs> I know that's hypocrisy, but to validate what I just said, because the Yoga Sutras say the karma of a yogi is neither black nor white. 
that the karman of others is of the three qualities or guna. So the more awake we are, the less fixed our karma. The less awake we are, the more fixed our karma appears to be to us. So before we go on, I think it's important to actually define what karma is. You know, I'm a big define your terms guy. The word karma itself has many meanings. It can mean work. It can mean deeds. It can mean fate. It can mean action. It has the same root as Kriya. I'm sure you all know that from Roy Eugene Davis. The root is K-R, Kri. Most commonly, that root is translated to mean to do. But in my research on karma and the etymology of karma, I came across another literal translation of that root, Kri. And when I discovered this, it changed the entire way I thought about karma. Another alternative meaning of that root is to make or give form to. And when I heard that, I was like, oh my gosh, it changed the entire way I looked at karma. It took karma from this Old Testament eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of thinking and this sort of hit and run fatality approach to an act of creation. Because suddenly I realized that the habitual thoughts the habitual words and deeds that I did were giving form to what I was experiencing. I and I alone am responsible for the creation of what I'm experiencing. So karma no longer was this sort of punishment. Karma for me became an act of conscious creation. I and I alone am responsible for what is in front of me. And as a spiritual community, let's agree never to use the word blame. I and I alone am responsible for it. There is no God outside myself, no guru that's going to come down and solve all my problems for me. I am the artist. I painted it. I can repaint it. So that really sort of changed the way I perceived karma. And I think it's important. It brought it to an act of creative manifestation. And if you look up the word karma in most Sanskrit, there's three or four different kinds of karma, and they had come with their Sanskrit names. And I think you can do that. You don't need me to tell you those specifically. You can look those up. The best description, though, of karma I ever heard actually came from Swami Rama. In his commentary on the Gita, the perennial psychology of the Bhagavad Gita, he described karma using uh, the bow and arrow. And you all know that in Hindu mythology, always, almost always, the bow and arrow represents karma. So, for example, in the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna is holding his bow, and Krishna says, or he says to Krishna, I will not fight, and he drops his bow. That's indicative, uh, symbolic, that he will not face his karma down. And, and what does Krishna say? Oh, poor baby, it's okay. You don't have to face your karma down. It's not what he says. What he says basically is, dude, man up. That's what he says. Well, literally, he says, this is behavior unbefitting a spiritual warrior. So almost always, a bow and arrow represents karma in those things. And Swami Rama used that to describe the three kinds of karma. The first kind of karma he described, you're holding the bow, the arrows are in the quiver. These arrows are the karma. And here, the, there's where you still have choice. These are your 
moment-to-moment -moment choices and their immediate expression day-to-day. -day. Here you have choice. Take the arrows out or leave them in. The next kind of karma, Swami Rama describes, the arrows are out of the quiver, they're notched on the bow. Here you still have choice. How will you spend your day? When someone cuts in your face, will you react or will you respond? That choice is yours. The arrow can go or you can put it back in the quiver. The Gita teaches things like remaining neutral and all those choices we're going to talk about. The third kind of karma Swami Rama describes, the bow, the arrow is notched on the bow, the arrow is away. These are the consequences of your past actions, your past thoughts, your past words. That arrow is going to land. In that, you do not have a choice. The only thing the sutras tell us is the karma will express when the timing is right. That's all we know about this. Where I disagree with Swami Rama is I do think we still have choice. The choice is how are we going to respond to what is in front of us? How are we going to respond to the karma in front of us? Will we get more caught up in it and further it along and make it worse? Or will we respond with spiritual maturity? Dissolving it when it comes to us. Those are the three kinds of karma. And they all have Sanskrit names, by the way, as well. We can look those up. Let's narrow down together karma just a little bit more. I remember one time... 20 some odd years ago, someone asked Roy again the karma question. And at the end of his talk on karma, I wouldn't say he said it offhandedly, almost casually, like an afterthought. He said, well, he, said, he didn't say well, he said, karma is just stuff in the mind, really. And I remember going, wait, what? You know, I was looking around at my life and it was a mess. I'm like, what do you mean it's in my mind? It's in front of me. I'm experiencing it. I didn't say this out loud in class, by the way. It was in my head. But I remember, you know, thinking I need to go figure out what he means by that, meant by that. Before we can describe what he meant by that, we have to talk about the mind a little bit. You know, talking about the mind, there's whole books written on the mind so we could spend all day. But what we need to know just for today is, our minds are individualized units of this field we call universal mind. And it is our minds that we, the soul, take with it from lifetime to lifetime. And these individualized manas, these field of thinking principle, among other things, they are recorders. And they record patterns. And these patterns are created by our habitual thoughts, words, and deeds. And there are two things about these patterns that we have grooved into the mind by over and over doing the same behavior or thinking or feeling. Two things that we know. One is they are always looking for expression. And the second thing is they are always looking to be resolved. Those are the two things. These grooves, by the way, you may know the word as samskara, but they are patterns grooved into the mind 
these patterns grouped in the mind was what Roy was referring to as karma. And they are always looking for expression. The other thing in Patanjali Yoga Sutras, uh, Sutra Pada 2, Sutra 12, we don't have to do the whole sutra together, but the first three words of the sutra are really good things to memorize, and they're really easy. You can say them with me. Plesha Mula Karma. Plesha Mula Karma. It then goes on to say other things, but that's really the important part of that sutra. Karma is rooted in Mula, the Kleshas. Plesha Mula Karma. All karma is rooted in the kleshas. The klesha, for those of you who are unfamiliar, the klesha, the word, has the same root as klist. Aklista, klista. It means affliction. These are the five afflictions of the mind, or the five mental poisonings. They're also referred to as the five restrictions, or mental restrictions, or five restrictions of the mind. These restrictions are, the first one is avidya. Avidya means, literally means to not know. Roy told us this, it meant ignorance of our true nature. I don't particularly like the word ignorant because it has connotations with it, but it's not knowing our true nature. That is the root of all other eclatias. The next eclatia is ahamkara or asmita. Asmita or ahamkara means literally I am ness. So that is that small sense of small sense of self, that separate sense of self that we have. Roy called this the ego. Not egotistical, ego. That small sense of separate self. How's that for alliteration? From ego or ahamkara spawns the next three places, and they are attachment aversion, and clinging. So all karma has its roots in the kleshas. And all kleshas stem from avidya, not knowing. If that's true, and I believe it is, what is the single thing we can do to ameliorate, make better, neutralize everything else? Wake up. Address avidya, the not knowing, you address all other karma, the kleshas, as well as what they spawn in karma. This is why Roy's message, same message for decades was, wake up. The number one answer karma is to wake up. Okay? Klesha mula karma. And then it goes on to say, whether seen or unseen, meaning whether it's expressed in the world or not. Okay. So if all karma has its roots in the klesha, and this is in the mind, the question becomes, well, are there ways to cleanse the mind? Are there ways to burn out this klesha, these karmas? And the answer is yes. And potentially Yoga Sutras gives us four ways, basically, more or less, to do this. The first way is super conscious meditation. What potentially says in Pada 1, somewhere between 
Sutra 42 and 46. He talks about there being two kinds of samadhi. Does everybody know samadhi? I'm going to assume this is a yoga crowd, so we're good at samadhi. He says there's two kinds of samadhi. There is sabhikalpa or sabhikalpa samadhi, and there's nirvikalpa or nirvikalpa samadhi. Sabhikalpa samadhi is samadhi with difference or doubt. Nirvikalpa samadhi is samadhi without difference or doubt. Sabhikalpa samadhi with difference. The difference is here at sabhikalpa samadhi, there's still a very thin sense of I amness. Still here there is ego. There is still awareness of self. And then what Tanjali says is there are four levels of sabhikalpa samadhi, samadhi with difference. There is samadhi with gross thought. There is samadhi without gross thought. There is samadhi with subtle thought. And there is samadhi without subtle thought. And Patanjali says, with at the level of samadhi without subtle thought, superconscious forces flood, swamp, fill the mind, and cauterize samskara. This is why Yoganandaji always said, burn the karma in the fires of your meditation. It is at this level of Savikapa Samadhi that superconscious forces polish over, neutralize karma. That is why Roy always taught us to meditate to the point of alert, alert thoughtlessness. And there he would say, rest. Say alert, awake, allowing your thoughts to subside. Superconscious forces will then flood the mind and neutralize karma, the places. This, he talked about this when he talked about uh, the pond. Remember the pond? At the bottom of the pond, there was a light. And he talked about allowing your meditation to get to the point where all that stuff in the pond settled to the bottom. And then with no messiness in the mind, no blurring of attention, the light shines through. And we say, aha, I'm that. Mm -hmm. That's what he was referring to. This fourth level of Savikapa Samadhi. Samadhi without subtle thought. The next way Patanjali talks about ameliorating karma is a way less popularized. I actually talked to Roy. It's one of my last conversations. It was the last conversation I had to him was about these. They're known as the four stations of Brahma, also referred to as the four immeasurables or the four pure abodes or the four directions. Patanjali talks about Compassion, friendliness, gladness, and equanimity or equal-mindedness. These are practical ways to neutralize karma. They literally overwrite the patterns in your mind you tend to behave. They are practical guidelines to ameliorating karma, and they are not easy. The next way potentially talks about neutralizing karma is by applying what is known as the law of opposites or opposite law. Roy talked about this a lot. This is when you feel a certain negative way or you think a negative way and you consciously apply its opposite to the way you're thinking. Let me give you a specific example. Evidence-based science is now saying there are people who are genetically programmed to be happier, to be happy. 
They're just genetically programmed to be happy. I'm unhappy about that because I'm not one of them. I don't wake up happy. I wake up and I have to say to myself, okay, Mike, you're going to choose to be happy today. I don't wake up in the morning all Pollyanna, bright and sunny. I wish I did. But over the years, I have consciously applied this law of opposites and my mornings as I get older are getting better and better and better. I am rewriting these patterns in my mind by applying the opposite pattern to them. And we can do that about just about everything. When you're angry, be calm, be joyous. Consciously apply the opposite and you neutralize these patterns in the mind by doing that. The fourth way you're probably very, very familiar with, and that is in the section of Pada 2, starts around 28, I think, 29, I don't remember exactly, this Ashtanga Yoga section. In the first part of Ashtanga Yoga are the Yamas and the Niyamas. And the Yamas and the Niyamas are literally behavioral modifications in society and within our own self, which neutralize karma. Applying the Yamas and the Niyamas are practical steps to changing our karma. So let's review these. The number one way to ameliorate, make better our karma, superconscious meditation. Addressing the core issue of avidya. That is the most powerful, direct way that yoga teaches us. And this is directly in line with Roy Eugene's Roy Eugene Davis's teaching. The next way is what is known as the four stations of Brahma. Learning to be compassionate, equal-minded, friendly, and glad. It doesn't say happy, by the way. It says glad. It doesn't say happiness. And by the way, the root of gladness in Sanskrit is drunkenness. I don't know what that says, but don't, don't be drunk. Be glad. The next way is applying the opposite, the law of opposites. And lastly, to work on consciously the yamas and the niyamas. These are direct ways to work on karma. Anybody want to make a comment or? Okay, so I need to apologize to you for this next section. I could not find a way into it smoothly. So this next part, it ain't pretty, sorry. I titled it, what to do about the karma that's manifesting in your life. So when I worked on it, because I thought, gee, we need to have, you know, a practical talk about what to do if karma's in front of you. And there's really sort of no easy way into that. I, I do know that I've been part of several Kriya Yoga communities over the years. And almost always when the conversation rolls around to karma, somebody spouts off the quote Yoganandaji gave, and that is, oh, when you come to this path, 50% of your karma is taken by God, 25 is taken by Guru, and 25% is yours. And then the joke is, yeah, but 100% of the 25% is yours. You know. I'm not going to, I think that would be presumptuous of me to argue with Paramahansa Yogananda, but I do notice that the conversation often moves forward or escalates to, well, what's mine? If 25% of my karma is for me to deal with, how do I know what mine is? And the 
answer is very straightforward, and that is this. If it's in front of you, it's yours. Uh, you know, it wouldn't be in front of you if it wasn't yours to deal with. And I'm always sort of a little confused when people are like, gee, do I have to face my karma? This is it. This is your karma. You're living your Gita. What's in front of you is yours. And I know that sounds sort of harsh, but there's no running from it. You're in it. Right? So what do you do? Well, the number one thing to do is be thou, Arjuna, a yogi. There are times, or I used to say, there are times when it's good to be a yogi. So there are three levels, really, that karma manifests on. And the first level is the physical level. This is the karma that's in front of you. You know, your, I don't know, <clears throat> your house gets hit by a tornado. God forbid, but you know what I'm saying. There's these physical karmas that are right in front of you. And how do you do this? How do you deal with these things? I remember one time I was going through a really hard time. So who are you going to call? I called Roy. And for me, Roy was always a loving and kind and gentle person. I think with me, maybe because you know how damaged I was. But he was always very gentle with me. And he said, uh, Mike, he always called me Mike. Y'all can call me Mike, too. He said, sometimes you just have to ride the wave out. And it's really true. Sometimes... And we don't really get flustered when the karma's good, do we? When it's good times, we don't whine and complain and, you know, poor me or lament. It's getting through the hard times that's really challenging for everyone. This, I, this platitude, this spiritual platitude, you know, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. My answer to that is, yeah, try. Try, try to see if it's optional or not. But when the physical, sometimes the only thing we can do is allow this karma to express and pass through, remembering that everything that has a beginning in the field of time must have an end in the field of time. I remember one time, another time, when Roy was asked about karma, he ended the talk with that story, that I think it's an Arabic story, the guy is getting married and goes to the jeweler, and he asks the jeweler to engrave something in his band that will hold him in good stead, during the good times and bad times, and the jeweler engraves, this too shall pass. Roy told that story as a way, this is where the Gita teaches us patience and equal-mindedness. And one of the requirements of being a yogi is, of course, fearlessness. This too shall pass. That holds us in good stead. Along with that, when we're dealing with our physical manifestation of karma, there's that old saying, move your feet while you pray. It's up to us to take practical measures to resolve what's in front of us without getting overly identified in the challenge. It's up to us to not be victims of what is placed in front of us. Do the best we can, but don't be attached to the fruit of that labor. So sometimes the answer is, Mike, you just have to ride the wave out. And then do everything you can, practically, to make it better, to ameliorate it. The next kind of karma, it's 
more difficult to describe. I've been around and around on this bend trying to figure out how to say it well for you. This karma is at the level of, manifests at the level of the mind. By the way, if physical karma is the physical body, dealing with this is the astral body, the level of the mind. Remember we talked about karma being grooves in the mind, expressing? Well, sometimes those grooves are expressing in your lifetime. And you know they're expressing because it's the same scenario played out in your lifetime over and over again, but with different players. You all know what I mean? And you finally, sometimes you go, what, this again? What's happening? I thought I dealt with this when I dealt with my mother or my father or the same. You know what I mean? This is one of the mental grooves, the pattern playing itself out in your life. And this can be very frustrating. But I know a way out of these mental patterns. You know, sometimes you just look on and you go, SSSDD, right? Same spiritual stuff, different day. But here's the way out. Sometimes it's so frustrating that these equations that we're experiencing seem unsolvable. Like you're in the same pattern again and again, and no matter what you do, it doesn't seem to get better. You seem to experience it over and over again. Here's why. Because in order to, by the way, this karma must be resolved in order to be dissolved. And it is looking, it is expressing in your life as a pattern over and over again because it's looking for you to resolve it in order to dissolve it. Your own has come unto you. And it is up to you to face it down and resolve it. And I know a secret. Now this part of the talk, by the way, I've given this talk over a six-hour period, so this is fast, but I think it can help. There's two requirements if you're going to resolve these patterns. And they are the following. The first way to resolve a pattern is through radical acceptance. You absolutely have to accept that the pattern is there. You cannot run from it. You cannot hide from it. By the way, as yogis, we know we are not the stuff in the mind. We are other than that. And so anything you are facing in your life karmically can be resolved because it's just stuff in the mind. And what challenges us, why we don't think we can resolve it if we're experiencing these patterns? Because we are identified with that pattern. We forgot the truth of our existence. And the first thing we have to do to resolve this pattern, this equation, is radically accept that it's there. The second part of this equation, and you're not going to like it, and you're not going to like me for telling you, the way to resolve this equation is that path which you are resisting the most is your road to freedom. I have seen this over and over again in spiritual circles. That which you are resisting the most is the answer to the equation. You all know how I know that? Resistance is indicative 
of aversion, attachment, and clinging. If one of those three places was not in play, you would not be resistant to solving this challenge the way you know inwardly you have to do. The answer to the karmic equation is always the path you are most resisting leads you to freedom. Over and over and over again. Again, at this level of the mind, we must resolve in order to dissolve. Now let me tell you that it's possible to take these physical manifestations and mental manifestations and bring them immediately into the superconsciousness. At the superconscious level, this causal level, that is the level of ideation. Burn them up at the seeds. It is absolutely possible. This is what Roy was telling us to do. Superconscious meditation, burning the karma up at the seeds. Any questions so far? So radical acceptance and that path you're most resisting is your road to freedom. The third kind of karma is really sort of a spiritual karma, meaning overcoming malaise, spiritual malaise. And there's only one answer to that. And it can, you know, Yoganandaji's entire Gita can be summed up in three words. Meditate, meditate, meditate. The entire, every page of his Gita, that's what it says to do. That's his resolution to everything, meditation. The last approach to resolving karma that I have for you today, and I know this isn't going to be a whole hour long class, that's this idea of propitiation, and you may have heard of it. This is when we go to Vedic astrologers um, and we have them read our charts and they hand us a gem. Well, they don't hand us. They allow us to buy gems <laughs> from them or um, astrological bangles, which I wear. Roy wore one. Uh, seeking out Brahmanic priests and having them doing ceremonies, uh, yajna and uh, agni hocha and those kind of things. I don't talk about that much because quite honestly I cannot attest to its efficacy it isn't that I don't believe in it it's just I can't prove to you that it works they say it does uh, the other things I've shared with you today I know they work because I've applied them in my own life so I feel confident sharing that with you I think when it comes to karma the one thing we have to remember is if just one of us can overcome and transcend, all of us can. And one of the things Roy said over and over again was, we all have a common destiny. And that common destiny is to wake up. So this idea that this hell and damnation version of karma, I just, it doesn't sit right with me. Maybe that's because I am an American, I don't know. But I think the best way to deal with karma is to spend most of our time integrating this yoga process of waking up. That's the best way. Michael, hello. Walter speaking hello. from Germany. Thank you so much. It was wonderful. Um, just one thing popped up um, when I hear this whole presentation from you. We are so strongly 
focused and concentrated on karma, on the bad things which could happen and uh, all the bads and crazy stuff. But on the other side, we have also good karma. So uh, the principle, what is lays behind what I always thought is that we create good and bad karmas. We are responsible just for the things coming up. And um, this is, at the end, a wonderful thing, isn't it? We are the creator from everything around us, everything that shows up. So we really have to be very positive and think we have it in our hand because this is um, really an incredible way. We are the creator from everything which comes up, good things and bad things. Yeah, so I would say we are, we are, we create our experiences. This whole idea of forging the world in our minds, I'm not sure that's exactly how I would say it. But the good karma, most people aren't too interested in talking about it because they're enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's why I didn't address it, but you're absolutely right. If we can, the more conscious we can become, the more aware of both we are, right? So the more awake we are, the more choice we have to be glad with what's in front of us as well. Hey, what do you want to talk? Um, so do we need to be uh, worried about burning the seeds of the good karma? Or eventually do we have to detach from that also? <laughs> I remember one time uh, when, I, when Roy used to travel I would stand in line like everybody else. And he always took me and with his left hand, he took my right hand and stood, pulled me next to him. And he would make me stand there and listen to him as he would work with people. I think he was teaching me how to do it. I remember an Indian gentleman came up one time and he said, he was, really, he was only like five foot six, you know, Roy, six, two, six, three. And he said, Mr. Davis, what happens if I go into Nirvikakapa Samadhi and I can't get out? And Roy looked down and said, <laughs> Sir, if you go into Nirvikalpa Samadhi, you won't care whether you come out or not. You know? <laughs> so I think, I think when it comes to good karma playing itself out, it, it will just resolve itself in the flow, and we don't really get too worried about it, do we? But yeah, everything that has a beginning in this time field has an end, including the good. But like I said, the more aware we are of our inner reality, the less concerned we are with the expression of karma in our external environment, whether good or bad. We're just okay inside. Does that answer the question? Mm -hmm. Good, thank you. Yes, and, uh, and thank you, Michael, for this uh, wonderful talk. I, I just had a quick question is about the, because um, you know, after we meditate, I, when I talk to my, my people through the meditation classes, it's just how to maintain that level of consciousness throughout the day until it becomes a permanent. And, and, and the thing about it is, uh, could you speak more about like with, with faith or focus or intention or that, that degree of, of, of intention so you can, like I say, you can just start maintaining it more regularly or throughout the day or through life's uh, challenge? What are you maintaining? The level of faith or, or a level of intention throughout the day. I don't, know that I, can, I don't know that I can speak to faith. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, it's more about being relentless. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, okay. I, I won't give up until 
I make it. And I believe I can make it. So whatever is presented to me, I have the faith, the belief that it's in front of me and I can overcome it, any karma. As for maintaining my awareness, it's practice, practice, practice. I try to integrate this yoga life into every part of my life. That includes the four stations of Brahma. That includes the yamas and the niyamas. That includes practicing being the observer. You know, Roy would talk about the observer as that which is behind the mind, looking out always, and learning to come from that space. I, I remember, though, one time Roy said, I am no longer ever unaware of what I am. And that takes deep practice and meditation. I don't think that happens for most of us without effort. And one of the ways Potential Yoga Sutras talks about concentration because it requires a certain level of concentration to stay aware all day long. One of the definitions he talks about from concentration is binding the mind to a single point. And he actually says that takes practice. So it takes practice to always be the observer. It takes practice to work with these four stations of Brahma. And it takes practice to be a good yogi. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Come together for a centering meditation before we tune out. Sitting upright, resting on our six bones, back is comfortably erect, looking out to that space between the eyebrow, the ajna chakra. Take a deep breath in and let it go. Inwardly acknowledge the truth of your existence, that we are immortal beings, birthless, deathless spirits, individualized units of pure existence being. At the core, we are the essence of being. Affirm after me. I am very awake. And I awaken more every day. Shanti, Shanti, Haryom, Shanti. May absolute peace pervade the universe. May absolute peace. Thank you all. Have a great karmic day.